You're listening to Token Talks, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I'm your host, Zach DeWitt. You can never be in a fully trustless system with tokenized securities. There's three baskets of trust that are affected by tokenization of securities. One is what trust level you need for that investment. That doesn't change. You're giving your money to someone in the real world who's then trying to make more money and can also lose it. So you still have to know who you're investing with, understand the investment thesis, and trust in them. And the use of the blockchain doesn't change the fact that you need to make a good investment. Today, we're joined by Josh Stein, the CEO of Harbor. Harbor's mission is to tokenize private securities. Just like email made written communication faster, cheaper, and easier compared to snail mail, Harbor believes tokenized private securities will transform traditional paper securities. The underlying security remains the same, but tokenizing on blockchains makes capital formation faster, cheaper, and easier by orders of magnitude, while unlocking liquidity for investors. As a result, Harbor believes this will become the new standard for trillions of dollars in private market assets such as real estate, private equity, investment funds, fine arts, and others. So Josh, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to join Harbor. Sure, I came to join Harbor through Zenefits, where I'd worked with David Sachs and the co-founders, Bob Ramica and Arisa Mana. When uh, I was ready to leave Zenefits late last year, I reached out to David and he suggested I take a look at a company he'd recently invested in, Harbor. And then I talked to Bob and Arisa and started kicking the tires and just became very excited about the company. What is the market opportunity that Harbor's focused on and what are you building? We're focused on tokenizing traditional private securities, real world assets. So you can think about a share in a private REIT, a share in a private company, an LP interest in a fund. And the idea is if you tokenize, if you put this electronic wrapper around a security interest that only exists in paper today, you can now make issuing it, especially trading it, faster, cheaper, and easier by orders of magnitude. So we'll talk more about that later. But to start, where did the idea for Harbor come from? It started when David Sachs raised his recent VC fund, Craft Ventures. He wanted to actually tokenize the LP interest in the fund, and he could not find a compliant way to do it. And he had an aha moment and said, there's a market opportunity. And what's David Sachs' background? So David was one of the original folks at PayPal, worked for Peter Thiel. After that, he had a string of successful companies, including Yammer, which sold to Microsoft. He uh, was a very successful angel investor. People may not know this, but he was the executive producer of Thank You for Smoking, which is one of my favorite movies. So you have several leading VC firms back in the company, including Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz. Tell us about your fundraising to date for Harbor. Sure. We raised about $10 million in a Series A that closed in January. And then we recently raised about $28 million in a strategic round. So is there a Harbor token that was sold as part of these fundraising rounds? And will be the Harbor token going forward? We have not sold a Harbor token. Uh, we don't plan to at this time. I wouldn't rule it out completely, but we don't think it's necessary for how the platform plus protocol works the way it's designed today. And we don't think it's necessary from a business standpoint today. So given your background, your legal background, and your experience in compliance, was it the central issues around compliance that attracted you to this opportunity? That was part of it. So, you know, a little more about my background was I was an attorney. I was a federal prosecutor for a while. I worked in-house in a number of highly regulated industries, including defense and aerospace, healthcare, and insurance. 
And so I saw how important compliance was. And what was particularly attractive about Harbor is that compliance is actually the foundation to the company. We perform a bunch of value-add services that are beyond just securities law compliance. But without the securities law compliance, nothing else that we do matters. And so it becomes the heart of the company. And what are the complications with tokenizing real-world assets? The complications are these very intricate securities restrictions and uh, contractual restrictions. A good example would be a private real estate investment trust. A private REIT always has to have a minimum of 100 shareholders, a maximum of 2,000, non-US persons less than 50%, and the top five shareholders less than 50%. If you don't follow all those rules, then the company has to go public or the company loses its favored tax treatment as a real estate investment trust. And so that's why today there's always very tight transfer restrictions on these shares. So does this require a change in current regulations? Our job is to actually enforce those regulations. So in a certain sense, we're a beneficiary of these complex rules because that enables the value that we provide. Today in a paper world, you can't allow these securities to trade freely because then you would have no way of controlling for all these rules. By harboring coding these rules and being able to enforce them through software, companies can lift the transfer restrictions and allow buyer and seller to find each other and transact. So in crypto, there's a lot of discussion about utility tokens and security tokens. And I think there's some people that may be confused about the differences. Can you please explain the difference between utility and security tokens? Sure. A security token is the easiest to understand, and it's what Harbor's dealing with, which is things are unambiguously securities. You own a fractional ownership in a structure that's designed to produce profit. So you own a share in a company, you own an LP interest in a fund, you own a bond. The difference with tokenization is that thing which exists on paper just has an electronic wrapper around it. It's like email for written communications versus a written letter, same content. Utility tokens are in a more of a regulatory gray area. They come in a variety of flavors. Some utility tokens simply serve as micropayment services for a particular protocol. So they're, it's almost as though they're a subtype of cryptocurrencies. Others actually are necessary for functional reasons. There's a certain amount of smart programming in that token that's necessary for the protocol to actually work. So let's dig into the capital formation aspects a bit. So how does Harbor make it easier for a fund to raise funding, for example? So if you start at the highest level, why should I tokenize the security interests in the fund that I'm raising? It's because it brings liquidity. So the academic literature will tell you that the liquidity discount is 20 to 30%. If you can offer liquidity, which investors highly value, you'll gather more investors, more capital at a lower cost of capital. So once you've decided to tokenize, what Harbor does is we provide a platform for onboarding the issuers, a platform for onboarding the investors, and then a platform for issuing these tokens. And then the rules we're able to enforce at the token level throughout the life cycle of that security. Now, are there liabilities that certain funds will face if they tokenize their LP interest? For example, if you're investing in a private equity fund, traditionally you have to sell that that security via the paper route. But if you use a token to transfer that security and it's more liquid, is there any negative effects for the fund? There are rules that they have to enforce. For instance, it's got to be an investor who's KYC ML, usually an accredited investor. There are certain liquidity transactions, depending on who's doing the trading and what venue. The liquidity would have to be restricted to a certain amount to prevent adverse tax treatment under the publicly traded partnership rules. It depends in part on the structure of the fund, whether and how they're making distributions and how much liquidity they're allowing for. The investor liquidity is definitely a huge development. How does moving private securities to blockchains help unlock liquidity for investors? There's three basic blockers to liquidity today. 
One is that buyer and seller can't find each other. Two is that you have to repaper every transaction. And the third is there's always these tight transfer restrictions because it's the only way to enforce these rules. So what the blockchain does is in the rise of these centralized and decentralized exchanges, it means that buyer and seller can find each other. There's a venue where people are posting a bid and an ask where market makers are providing bridging liquidity. With the Harbor platform and tokenization, you don't have to repaper every transaction. And most importantly, Harbor can control all these compliance requirements so that you can lift the transaction restrictions and allow buyer and seller to transact. So the efficiency is definitely important, but are there other aspects that make this transformative? There are, and this is going to sound a little bit like a shtick, but you got to go back to the origins of modern capitalism, which was hundreds of years ago, a bunch of Dutchmen sprinkled with a few Englishmen meeting in coffee houses at the corner of Broad and Wall. And there were two magical ingredients that went together. It was fractional ownership plus liquidity. And that resulted in the rise of modern capitalism. Today, we still have that in the public markets. But private placements, private capital formation exceeds public fundraising today. The problem is private placements have fractional ownership. They have no, virtually no liquidity. Even bringing a modicum of liquidity from the public markets down to the private markets is going to be transformative. Yeah, I totally agree. Tokenizing real-world assets definitely applies to many different asset classes. Um, what is Harbor first focusing on? I think it's less what Harbor first focused on and what first focused on Harbor. So we're dealing only with inbound interest which we're very gratified to find it's been overwhelming. Real estate is probably 75 to 80% of the inbound interest. I think there's a number of reasons for that and a number of reasons why it's the best first asset class to tokenize the securities on the blockchain. One is that real estate is an easily understandable asset class. If I own a piece of an iconic building, I can understand that. There's less risk overall in the sense of things don't go to zero with real estate as much unless it's highly over levered. So I understand what I'm owning. It's easy to evidence the ownership. I don't have to have the same trust level in the managers quite as much because I know what the assets are. It is a stable store of value, again, assuming it's not over levered. So particularly for a lot of folks putting capital into cryptocurrencies today, they're doing it to find a stable store of value. There's nothing more stable than U.S. real estate. And then finally, real estate in particular attracts a lot of foreign investment. And today, that's very difficult to efficiently gather up large numbers of more retail-like investors. So if you think about a real estate trust that's trying to raise $50 million, they could aggregate five investors at $10 million each. Maybe if they're lucky, they get 20 investors at $2.5 million each. A REIT can have up to 2,000 shareholders. If you could efficiently gather 2,000 shareholders from around the world, that's only a $25,000 minimum per. So in effect, you can democratize investment in U.S. real estate by using tokenization in a platform to more efficiently amass investors from around the world. Yeah, so if I think about this with real estate, I can go into my Fidelity account and invest in a REIT today. Is really the first use case REITs tokenizing or is it other types of real estate assets that are tokenizing? How do you think about that? Sure. So what you're tokenizing is the security interest in the investment vehicle. So it's a share in a corporation, LP interest in a fund. You don't actually tokenize the asset. You tokenize an ownership interest. And that's important to keep in mind because then the question becomes, what's the best legal vehicle for doing that? For real estate, REITs are a great vehicle because they have such preferential tax treatment because there are not tax-like restrictions on the liquidity, unlike when you get into um, sort of a GPLP structure. But it, again, it depends on what investor base you're targeting, how you structure it, what sorts of distributions you make. If you want to retain capital in the structure, is it designed to pass through depreciation, in which case an LP structure is better? So 
Just because you add the word crypto or token doesn't mean that all the same capital markets analysis, the same rigor that you take to the investment thesis goes away. What tokenization does is it adds liquidity, it expands and democratizes your investor base, but you still need to, underlying that, have a fundamentally good investment. So I read in one of the interviews you did with Forbes, you talked about how with this new model, this new framework, you could essentially unbundle assets and you could go long Brooklyn and short Manhattan. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What does it mean to unbundle and rebundle assets and, and why is that important? By tokenizing assets, it's like email to snail mail. You can do things faster, cheaper, and easier. So when you can form private capital and amass larger numbers of investor faster, cheaper, and easier, you can do it at a lower asset level. So REITs today, public REITs, have huge bundles of assets. There's a real hunger amongst investors to invest at a more micro level. So if I owned a bunch of real estate, say class A commercial, I could tokenize a portion of the ownership in each building. Very easily you can use technology, for example, from SET to create essentially baskets or ETFs of those. So if someone tokenized, whether it's one person or multiple people, created tokenized ownership interests in all the class A around the Bay Area, I could very easily create baskets of those tokens. So I could create a basket of the entire Bay Area. I could have a Bay Area class A ETF. I could do the same instead of a more micro level by neighborhood. So I could have a basket or go long financial district. I could go long Soma. I could go long Jackson Square where Harbor is located. And then there are other great technologies like DYDX that allows you on the fly to create customized synthetic leveraged longs and leveraged shorts. So in the same token, you could go short financial district. You could go long the East Bay. You could, at the highest level, go long San Francisco, short New York. It strikes some people as speculation, but it has some very utilitarian aspects to it. If I'm a real estate developer and I am pouring a lot of capital into a development in one concentrated bet, like in San Francisco, if I'm, say, the developer of the Salesforce Tower, I can very easily hedge my exposure by buying some of these synthetic shorts to hedge the amount of capital I'm deploying in one concentrated market. Yeah, I think exactly what you said is what makes the blockchain so exciting, right? That you can really invest in very specific areas. Uh, you can create new derivatives, new products. Um, so the amount of creation, innovation that's about to happen, I think, is, is really exciting. So you, you articulated that well. So a primary use case for ICOs was company fundraising. How will tokenization work for private equity and more traditional funds? So let's start with what you talked about, which is private companies, and then roll that forward to funds, which are a little bit different. Private companies, I think, are interesting. I think there's a great use case for tokenization of private companies, but not how you and I normally think about it. Our mental, our implicit mental model is all these hot tech startups in Silicon Valley. Those are not, frankly, great candidates for tokenization because they don't want to provide liquidity to their investors. Tokenization, the first best use cases are where you want to lock up the capital, but not the investor. Real estate, other capital intensive businesses where you have a high, you're sensitive to the cost of capital and you are at least somewhat indifferent to the identity of your investor, that's great. Because remember, the greater the pool of eligible investors, the greater the liquidity. For hot tech startups, they're not capital constrained. They're choosing the investors rather than vice versa. And the last thing they want is investors freely getting in and out of their company. If you think instead about the vast majority of companies that power the American economy, they're not that lucky. They are a string of auto body shops. They are a set of professional services businesses. They are all the small and medium-sized businesses powering our economy. They're a great case to tokenize because they're, they're out there 
trying to find capital and they are sensitive to the cost of capital. And anything that allows them to vast, amass more investors at a lower cost of capital is very worthwhile to them. Are there cases when tokenization does not make sense for a company? Yes. Like I mentioned, where you have only a very small number of investors that you want to allow. For instance, if you have a small syndicate of 30 friends and you folks are investing in real estate or investing in something else, and you don't want to let anyone else get in and out of your investments, tokenization does not add a lot of value. It adds some. You could trade amongst your 30 folks. And I'd add that you're not limited to opening the universe open to everyone. So for a lot of these folks we're talking to, they'll allow any legal investor worldwide to come in. There are other folks we've talked to who have a large installed base of investors, and they would create a walled garden. So if you are someone who has 50,000 investors worldwide amongst a whole bunch of different investments, we can create a custom whitelist so that any of those 50,000 investors can trade in and out of any of your tokenized funds, but no one who's outside your walled garden can come in without approval. But the smaller your whitelist, the smaller the group of allowed investors, the less the liquidity and the less value that tokenization will bring. So as, a, as an everyday user and potential investor in some of these new asset classes, or, or I guess new products, how do I buy them? How do I invest? You know, where, where will I see these tokens showing up? You will see them showing up in most cases in web advertisements and the other ways in which the issuers are soliciting. Harbor is a technology platform. It is not a marketplace. So it's not going to be that you go to harbor.com and you see 50 investments and you're shopping for them. Instead, you're going to see a website that the issuers put up, www.amazinginvestment.com. That's going to tell you something about that investment and then invite you to onboard with Harbor to go through our vetting processes if you're interested in, in investing. I think what's interesting is to think about how does the solicitation of investors change in this crypto world? Because today in these private placements, usually they're going to a small number of institutional investors. And so now you're going after a larger group of people. You need to get the word out. In a legal sense, you're going from a 506B, which is a private placement, to a 506C, which involves a general solicitation. And so you have to access marketing channels and think about how you get the word out. And that's going to be a little, that's going to feel a little bit different to issuers. So that will probably create an entire new part of the industry as well in terms of the, the marketing channels and that whole aspect. Um, so how does Harbor make money? The old fashioned way we earn it. So Harbor is, I'll talk in the long term and the short term. In the long term, Harbor will price as a percentage of the issuance of the capital being raised with certain minimums. And then we intend over the longer term, even longer term, to develop value-added services like the ability to distribute dividends for issuers or the ability to handle proxy statements and other administrative aspects. In the very short run, until Harbor finishes getting its broker-dealer license, Harbor is a technology platform and we contract to broker-dealers and the issuers and we price much like a SaaS service. So there's an implementation fee, there's a base maintenance fee, and then there's a per-user or per-seat fee. And how do transfer restrictions work? If I'm a fund and I don't want my tokens or the shares in my fund being traded freely, um, does Harbor prevent that and protect that as well? Yes, we can enforce whatever regulatory and contractual rules the issuer wants. Our base is we will insist on applying the proper regulatory rules. We will not allow it to trade in ways that are illegal that we can control. But certainly issuers can be more restrictive than the law requires. And we can certainly program for that. And some of the interesting services we can provide for instance, are the equivalent of 10B5 trading programs. Because Harbor, and I'll go into this in a second, Harbor always knows the real world identity of buyer and seller and correlates that with the blockchain identity. 
So if the issuer tells us, hey, here's a list of officers and directors, these folks can only trade in these trading windows. We can, for that, what we call a gray list for just those holders, we will restrict their trading ability to those windows. So Harbor certainly seems like a crucial layer for the tokenization of real world assets and securities, but does Harbor have any competitors yet? Harbor does. Harbor has a few competitors and a larger number of potential partners. In terms of competitive models, I think some folks are going in a fully decentralized fashion. Others are going in a fully centralized fashion. And Harbor is a mix of the two in an interesting way. So some folks are going completely decentralized. They issue a coin. They think that you're going to find your KYC ML vetters, your law firms, your all the different market participants are going to meet each other in a decentralized fashion. And you engender trust by posting bonds of these coins that the community can vote to burn down. Very much the game theory economics we see in a lot of protocol tokens. That may work. It may particularly work in the very long run when people are very familiar with this. Our thesis is folks are going to rely on trust and they're going to want to understand who they're dealing with. And I think some of it is think about how trust is the same and different with tokenized securities. You can never be in a fully trustless system with tokenized securities. There's three baskets of trust that are affected by tokenization of securities. One is what trust level you need for the investment. That doesn't change. You're giving your money to someone in the real world who's then trying to make more money and can also lose it. So you still have to know who you're investing with, understand the investment thesis, and trust in them. And the use of the blockchain doesn't change the fact that you need to make a good investment. Where you have heightened trust um, or you need less trust is the evidence of your ownership. Because of the blockchain, you don't need to worry about owning what you own. You can see on the blockchain that you own those shares. You know they're not double pledged. You know you don't have a case of like Dole Foods a year ago where Dole thought it has a certain number of shares outstanding. Investors thought they had a lot more. So the blockchain works great for that. But what's truly transformative is the secondary liquidity. That is today you need to have escrow agents and counterparties and it's very difficult. On the blockchain, you can trade 24-7, 365 around the world with instantaneous settlement and no counterparty risk. That is truly transformative and nothing like that exists without the blockchain. So Harbor is building on top of Ethereum. Why did you guys choose Ethereum out of all of the platform protocols? Precisely because there'd be this ecosystem of partners and supporters. The amount of developers on Ethereum is astounding. The amount of smart people coming with really creative solutions, people like DYDX with synthetic derivatives set, which allows you to create custom ETFs on the fly. Really important institutional services like Bitco as a qualified custodian, folks like Gemini, folks like Cumberland with its trading arm. The rise of all these interesting exchanges providing with different setups for providing liquidity, folks like Open Finance or folks like Templum. And similarly, folks are rising around the world. I've spoken to an owner of an exchange in Singapore, a market maker and broker dealer in Hong Kong, folks in Switzerland and Australia. That whole ecosystem is the same buzz around the internet. We don't think closed systems are going to win out. And we very much chose Ethereum because we very much believe that no one company or group of developers is going to be able to do everything. Are you at all concerned about the well-documented scaling issues with Ethereum? I wouldn't say that I'm concerned. I would say that we observe it. The scaling issues around Ethereum will be important for certain types of securities and not for others. 
some securities are going to trade far more than they do today, but they're not going to be high frequency trades. If you have a private REIT with a $25,000 a unit investment minimum, those are not going to trade thousands of times a second. A 15 minute settlement period or a 15 minute block writing time on the Ethereum blockchain, they're not going to view that as a problem. You're going to take liquidity that today takes months and reduce it to 15 minutes. That's transformatively better. If you think of different securities, like say some of these synthetic derivatives around DYDX, those may start to exhibit much higher frequency trading patterns, and then scaling could become an issue. Is the way to think about Harbor's technology, is Harbor basically adding a small piece of code to every token, and then any time that token wants to trade hands, that code is checked against the Harbor compliant database to make sure that that trade is allowed? How should we think about how Harbor fits into the each trade? Everything you said was correct, but incomplete. Harbor is a platform plus a protocol. There's a small amount of programming in the token itself. I'm going to oversimplify technically, but essentially that token calls to Harbor and Harbor is the trade compliance oracle. And Harbor checks who the buyer and seller are, what the trade is and where the trade occurs to make sure they're all compliant. Is the buyer a credit investor if necessary, KYC, ML check, are they subject to a gray list? what the trade is, things like min-max investor numbers, concentration requirements, holding periods, where is it on properly licensed exchange. But without the platform, without knowing the real world identities that correspond to these wallet addresses, and without being able to do it on a token level, wherever that token trades, you can't ensure compliance and no one can. That's why we think centralized solutions don't win. Because if you go with a centralized solution, there are some exchanges where They'll take care of the compliance, but then the token can trade on that exchange and only on that centralized exchange, which means you're stuck with one jurisdiction, one pool of liquidity, and you're locked in for the rest of your life. We think that's incredibly restrictive on anyone. So how far along is Harbor? And when will we start seeing these tokenized private securities come to market? This summer. And fast forward to 2025. What is different about the financial markets than today? You're going to see more private capital formation than you have today. Because again, by making it faster, cheaper, and easier to mass capital from more investors, you will get a lot more of it in the same way in which we email far more today than we ever wrote letters. I think interestingly, some folks have thought that with the increased private capital formation and the liquidity in private capital, that somehow you'd have less capital going public. I actually think the opposite. What I think is you're going to train investors to always want liquidity. They're going to demand it. And while we can bring a lot more liquidity to private securities today than they have, you can't bring the liquidity to the public markets unless you actually go public. That private read or private company has a maximum of 2,000 investors per class of equity. There's only so much liquidity you can have with 2,000 shareholders. You have to go public to have an unlimited shareholder count and share count. And so I actually think this is going to provide a ramp. Investors, folks are going to form private capital more often. Investors are going to have liquidity. And once they get a taste, they're going to want even more. And you're actually going to see more IPOs, more companies going public, precisely because people want that liquidity. So I've heard you talk a bit about the art market. So maybe you could walk through an example of what it means to tokenize art and how that could play out, maybe using SET and some of these other products you talked about. Art is really interesting. It's transformative in the sense of it's not widely securitized today. It happens occasionally, but it's very cumbersome. We've talked to a couple high-end art dealers who sought us out with they have their own large inventory. They have access to institutional inventory. So suppose I syndicate ownership in a single painting, a Monet. 
It happens occasionally today, but it's clunky because it's all on paper. It's hard to find people and liquidity is very difficult for all the reasons we discussed. But suppose I securitize a Monet and then suppose I securitize several works by Monet and then I use set or a separate fund. Now I can own a Monet fund. I can go long Monet. I could then do the same for Matisse. I could then create a fund or a set that owns both Monet and Matisse and a bunch of other French impressionists. And I can now go long French impressionists. I could do the same for modern art. Using DYDX, I could go long French impressionists and short modern art. I would take that trade every day because I'm a Philistine. All the folks I talked to in New York would do exactly the opposite. And that becomes very interesting. So think of it from the point of view of institutions like museums. And this gets back to the unbundling and rebundling. The museums don't want the right to the capital appreciation of the work. They want the right to exhibit the art. That's two different property rights. By disentangling the two, museums can raise a lot of money. They essentially have billions and billions of dollars of working capital locked up and hanging on their walls. Disaggregate the right to the appreciation, securitize that, raise funds, allow investors to get into works that are financially attractive. I was told that fine art has a 0.08 correlation with the S&P 500. Also allow them to have the emotional connection to these works, which matters so much to them, and allow these museums to raise a ton of money. And then what becomes really interesting and the vision that these folks laid out for me is once you've established that with fine art, then bring it down market. There are all these artists who are starting to get interest, who are starting to sell art for 20 grand a pop or 50 grand a pop, but aren't quite at the level at which they can truly sustain themselves. Create a fund that owns the right to a 20% ownership at every future work of art by this artist. Allow people to invest in the fund. You now are providing working capital of that artist to launch their career. An interesting way for people to invest in art and a great way to show support for artists and art generally. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do you envision multiple applications being built on top? I mean, I can imagine if I own a piece of a you know, Monet painting, do I then, can I interact with that in different ways? Do I get news about that painting? Do I have a badge that shows I'm, you know, a, an artist fan and supporter? You know, do you see different applications being built on top? I think there's some really interesting ways to bundle up other, if not rights, other perks. And it could be, if you're a museum, it may be, okay, if you buy this ownership stake, you now have special viewing times and the rest of the public isn't there so you can appreciate it or a special cocktail party. Same way in which you give special perks to people who support a museum. Um, maybe the museum would even allow people to have certain private exhibition rights. So if I own 10% of a Monet, that means one week a year I'm allowed to privately exhibit it, for example, at my home. Or there are a lot of different ways you can mix and match different perks and rights that become very interesting to tie that connection together. And it combines sort of the best of this idea of the coins and the securities. The securities are traditional economic interest. A lot of these coins out there, people are trying to issue coins to do things that are more like loyalty programs. And so now you can combine the two. You could do that today. You could say every shareholder in Delta or every shareholder in the company gets certain perks, but it's actually very hard. Most companies don't know directly the identities of their shareholders because they outsource managing their cap table as a public company, especially to depository trust corporation. DTC then has accounts with the broker dealers in street names and the broker dealers have their accounts or sub broker dealer accounts. So no one knows who anybody is, which is part of how the share counts get all messed up. And so this is a way on a lower level to tie together the economic interest as well as what you mentioned, which is other interests that tie people into a community. And I don't, I can't tell you that I've fully thought it through, but you're not the only one who's raised that. I think there's a real hunger for connection and community and to tie that with investment. 
Yeah, I got to attend the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting for the first time this year as a guest. And that's, you know, that's exactly what you're talking about. Everyone that goes is a shareholder and it's a sense of community and there's all these perks that come with it. And I can imagine, you know, this ecosystem being built out for other types of assets if you, as you become a shareholder. And so I think there's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so, so Josh, you know, you started off this podcast saying you're initially skeptical of cryptocurrencies uh, and now you're running a really important blockchain based company. How have you progressed in terms of your thinking about the space? <laughs> so all I knew when I first approached David Sachs about um, joining him late December last year, and he mentioned this company Harbor and my initial reaction was just complete skepticism because all I knew was what I saw, the rampant speculation. I had friends of mine on Facebook. Uh, from my time in the army and elsewhere who were maxing out credit cards to go buy cryptocurrency. And that just struck me as fundamentally unhealthy. But then what enticed me was I knew David and then I knew the co-founders, Bob and Arisa, and I trusted them. So I thought maybe there's something that I don't know. And once I kicked the tires, it was sort of, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus. I sort of fell off my skeptical horse and just, I had that thunderbolt. Once I really got it, I thought, okay, there's something really transformational about this. Liquidity 24-7, 365 around the globe with instantaneous settlement, no counterparty risk. That is truly transformative and value enhancing. And you don't get an opportunity to address a market that's measured in the tens of trillions of dollars very often. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. So how can our listeners follow the progress of Harbor? Best way is harbor.com. And will, will the listeners um, see Harbor? Will they just see the Harbor interface when they're actually going through the KYC AML process? Or how will they interact with Harbor going forward? Today, they can go to harbor.com. If they have um, interest in investing or setting up an account or becoming a partner, there are ways to do that. I would ask for people's patience. We are fortunate to have the problem of having far more inbound interest than we know what to deal with. We are hiring furiously to meet that demand. I would especially encourage any of the listeners to scour our job opportunities and please don't hesitate to apply. We're trying to hire really good people. And like any other company in the Bay Area, the competition for talent is fierce. I think going forward, you will see investment opportunities and you'll hear about them. And we'd encourage you then to set up the Harbor account so that you can buy them. But again, I really would encourage folks need to do the due diligence. They need to pay attention to what the investment banker or the broker dealer or the issuer is giving them. And they should not turn off their critical thought just because there's the word crypto or token. It's a promise of liquidity, which enhances the value. But at the end of the day, it's got to be a good investment. Yeah, that's a really important point. So last question, you mentioned DYDX set. You know, what are some of the projects in crypto that you're personally most excited about or most relevant for Harbor? This is going to feel like an Oscar speech where people keep naming names and it feels way too long. I think some of the others, uh, the Dharma protocol and what they're doing around loans and debt is very interesting. I think one of the next asset classes we might try and tackle is asset-backed securities, particularly CDOs. I think Block Board, I think, I think I'm getting the name of Vitaly's uh, company correct. I love what they're doing. I love what Vitaly is doing. Um, very interested in a lot of the supporting players. So you need people like a Gemini, people like a Bitco, qualified custodians. That's a regulatory status as a financial institution. I'm really looking forward to the day where we see a lot of market, more market makers and traders, people like a Cumberland. I just, I won't make this an Oscar speech because there's so much ferment going on, but that's why we love being in the space. Actually, I will have an Oscar moment. I would have to call out Zero X and the protocol and the exchanges being built on top of it. Another interesting player that I mentioned before is Templin, which has a very different model for how their market works. Um, and they 
have the fullest set of relevant licenses that I've seen and, and a very deep capital markets expertise. Every time I dig into one of these and start to peel the onion on one of these potential partners, you just realize how many bright, motivated, hardworking people are tackling the space. And, and I'll wrap that all back to the importance of the Ethereum ecosystem, the importance of an open ecosystem, which is no one company can ever amass that amount of talent and work and creativity. Well said. The key takeaways from today's episode are, one, Harbor is one of the first blockchain technology companies to address the regulatory challenges of exchanging digital securities, including both ICOs and secondary trades on blockchain. The startup plans to assist businesses in legally issuing asset-backed cryptocurrency tokens. Two, Capital Formation is a potential killer app of blockchains but a lot of investors and institutions are waiting on the sidelines for asset-backed securities to be tokenized before jumping in. And three, Harbor is re-engineering private securities with blockchain technology to help usher in a new wave of tokenized securities backed by real-world assets, such as real estate, company equity, investment funds, and fine art. The Harbor platform, powered by its compliance protocol, is the first to ensure tokenized securities comply with existing securities laws on every trade globally. Thank you for listening to the show. We're trying to make the crypto ecosystem more mainstream and welcoming. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review in iTunes and share this with one person you know who is trying to learn more about crypto technology. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at Zach at wing.vc.